0: when you associate bad habits with relaxing and feeling good you're not going to stop those bad habits so I think you've you've got to have those trigger associations that also make you feel good as well so when I do my exercise sitting on an exercise bike is unbelievably boring so I watch an enjoyable tv show And i look forward to watching the tv show and forget about the exercise and then feel that as you said in the in in one of the other segments you feel that sense of achievement having done what you know is very good for you
1: welcome 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 to the eat live and move podcast by miyagi a space where we bring you the latest science-backed conversations expert insights and practical tips relating to all things health and wellness. I'm Dr. Gina Cleo, your personal habit change expert.
0: And I'm Dr. Ross Walker, a cardiologist and preventative health expert.
1: And together with our 60 plus years of collective experience, we're on a mission to help you to improve your health and transform your habits so that you can eat, live and move better one episode at a time without the fluff and without the fads. Now, Ross, it's February, which it means is. that the majority of us have probably forgotten our New Year's resolutions. Our what? Our New <laughs> uh, so, so, Sorry. Oh my goodness, sorry. Ross, you're at it so early. You got sorry. me there. <laughs> the research shows that about ninety-two percent of us will have forgotten our New Year's resolutions by February. You know, a few weeks ago. We released an episode. It was episode 16 where we covered goal setting and we ran through all the essential things that we need to set great goals. If you haven't listened to that, jump on there and listen to that episode. And we promised you on that episode that we'd share the goal pitfalls. So, what are the things that we get wrong? What are the things that we're doing that the mistakes, I guess, that we're doing when we're setting goals that are negatively impacting our ability to succeed to successfully. Achieve our goals or to see results. So I'm going to go through some of those today.
0: Yeah.
1: Ross, tell me. I know that you didn't set New Year's resolutions at such, but no. you did have some goals for your work. I remember you telling us. How are those yeah. going?
0: They're they going fine. Um. See, as, as as I said, one of the things you have to do as a as a specialist or a, a doctor and in many other professions as well is have this continuing professional development. And one of the things they want you to do is have these uh, professional development plans and self-care plans, and then you've got to have an annual conversation with one of your colleagues. And so I've got two cardiologists who work with me in my practice, and I sat sat down and I said, well, okay, criticisms, whatever. And their big criticisms for me, and this is after 40 years of practicing medicine, was that my letters were lousy, Um, and I didn't always write. The medications people were on. It. I didn't always write their problem list, so I, th- I thought I'd, I took that on board, and, and it, it adds a fair bit of time to my day to do this. But I found it a really useful exercise to do it because it, it, it just reacquaints me with things I might have forgotten about the patient. When you've got seven thousand patients on your list, it's hard to remember every single detail of each of those patients. So, so that, that's just one little thing that. That in this professional development plan I had to do, you know, what what is it about my practice I could change and improve? And they gave me this advice, and I took on the advice, and and uh, I've started doing it. The more I do it, the easier it gets. But it's just a but it but I, what I've found by doing this, just this minor thing, is it just then reacquaints me with the person's entire history and the issues that that meld in together. It's been quite quite an interesting exercise and one that I've found very valuable. So even at my um, my age and stage in medicine—you're uh, still learning new things, which I—I I I love to, that. I and I love like that to you took it on new every day.
1: like you took oh, all yeah. the feedback. You weren't like, "Stuff you guys, I've been doing this for a long time. I'll keep doing it my way." Well done, Ross.
0: Yeah, yeah well, I think I think you've got to you've you've got to be a bit self-critical as well. And and I'll, I'll tell you, actually, I'll tell you a very funny no, story. No, wait, really I'm going to
1: stop you. I can't let you get away with that. You don't need to be self-critical. You need to be self-compassionate.
0: Okay, self-compassionate, but. <laughs> but I was, I, one, of, one of the great experiences of my life is I was a keynote speaker at the biggest insurance conference in the world to 12,000 people in the New Orleans Convention Center in 2005, one month before Cyclone Katrina. And, wow. um, and what they do is you get up and you give your talk, but the next day they have a comedian who absolutely takes the mickey out of your, out of your talk. And they oh, sit no. you in the front row in front of 12,000 people and this guy is making the audience no. laugh and he's criticising every bit of the talk in a very humorous That's way. That's savage. And they ha- they have they have you in the front row and the camera's focused on you. And what this guy was saying about me was so funny. I was crying with laughter. <laughs> and after, after, after the talk, the organisers came up to me and said... We've been doing this now for 20 years. That was the best response we've ever had from any speaker. Because really? some of them were quite offended by it. I just thought it was hilarious. It was That's actually That's pretty fun. good.
1: I like that about you, Ross. You can take it, but you give it, but you can take it, which I think Absolutely. is important.
0: Absolutely. That's
1: so good. Okay, back to goals. Back, back to, to
0: goals. Back to goals.
1: When we set out to accomplish a goal, we obviously want to reach the finish line. We want to get That's The whole reason we've set a goal, right, is because we're working towards something that we want to achieve. And there is nothing more disheartening than having really great intentions to achieve something and then we feel like we can just never get there. It's a horrible feeling. So I want to help everybody by, you know, giving you some of the goal pitfalls. These are some of the things that I see consistently that people are getting wrong or they're setting goals that are, uh, that that I can see it's really hard to achieve. And this was from years of studying behavioral science and from tens of thousands of clients that I've worked with. The most common goal-setting pitfall are setting goals that are too big or too far-fetched or setting too many goals. If the list of goals resembles something more like Santa's Christmas wish list than a realistic set of achievable aspirations, we've got a problem. Our brains are only capable of making up to three changes at one time. So by limiting the number of goals that you set for yourself to up to three, you will significantly improve your chances of actually achieving those goals without overwhelming your poor brain. And this is one of the reasons why COVID was such a difficult time for people to change the things that they were doing. Is because we already had to make so many lifestyle changes and learn so many things. And so to actually implement healthy changes was way too hard. We already had way too much going on. So by limiting them to just three and actually just focusing on one thing at a time is even better but the high achievers amongst us are going to struggle with just focusing on one goal to achieve at a time but it is awesome i've focused on just one goal this year and it's been to do more breath work just before bed and i've developed the habit it's february i've developed the habit and ross you had that one goal of having better letters and you've done it you've achieved it
0: yeah and as well, let one goal in that aspect of my life. So, but the other the other goals are just to maintain what I already do: the exercise and try to eat well and keep my grog down and all of those sort of things, which I think are important.
1: Yeah, I love that. We've talked about goals being too big, too far fetched, or too many. I've talked about having too many goals. Now I want to talk about goals that are too big or too far fetched. So, what do I mean by this? Our brain goes into a state of hyper arousal when our goals are too big. So too big a goal might be, I want to lose 40 kilograms this year or I want to run a marathon this year if you've never been a runner before. Or, you know, these big aspirations, and I love aspirations, I love ambition, I'm such a big fan of it. But the research shows over and over again that we are much more likely to stick to our goals and actually maintain those goals if we just do small things and focus on consistency. It is all about consistency, not intensity. So I call these micro habits. Micro habits are essentially a smaller, simpler version of the habit that you're trying to create. So say your goal is to walk, say, 10,000 steps a day, instead of just starting with 10,000 steps, which may feel overwhelming. And if it's something that you're not used to, it's a big change to your lifestyle. Start with just two thousand steps a day, and then once that feels more natural and automatic, bump it up to four thousand steps, then six thousand, and so on, until you reach your ultimate goal of ten thousand steps.
0: That's uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with you that I think people have to do things that are achievable, and and I have so many people come into my practice and say, "Oh, doctor, I'm going to do this, and I'm this time, I'm really going to get healthy," and it, you know, it's just not going to happen. So I I, I think those. Micro-habits, it's a really good term.
1: Yeah. And the other thing that I see is not associating a trigger to the habit that we're trying to create. So every single habit that we have has a trigger. Habits are responses to triggers, and those triggers are in our internal or external environment. So it can be the way we're feeling, it can be uh, the place we're in or the time of day or the people we're around – And one of the things is that if we want to create a new habit and actually have it something that's maintaining in our life, we need to associate that new habit with a trigger. So instead of saying, I'm going to exercise, you want to say at 7 a.m. I'm going to exercise. So then 7 a.m. comes around. That's when you do your exercise. And as you repeat that, you actually start to create a mental link between 7 a.m. and exercising. And as you repeat that, your brain starts to then trigger you, and then as 7 a 7 a.m. comes around, you're like, oh, this is the time I exercise. And you go ahead and exercise without having to use your memory, your willpower, your self-control. It happens automatically.
0: Yeah, can, I, can I say on this, just personally, to me, as soon as I wake up in the morning, that's when I meditate. So I always meditate first thing in the morning, and then w- once I finish meditating, then I get out of bed and do my weights and stretching. But- I never do weights and stretching in the evening. So if something's happened and I and I haven't been able to do the weights and stretching in the morning, uh, rarely, rarely haven't been able to meditate in the morning, it's very difficult for me to switch it around and say I'll do it in the evening because that's the trigger for me. This is the time you meditate. This is the time you do your weights and stretching, whereas I do my bike in the afternoon.
1: I'm exactly the same. If I don't get up and do like the you know, 5.30 or the 6.30 a.m. Pilates class, I am never going to the 8.30 Pilates class. It's too late. Like, no, don't and I'm also never like the 8.30 to,
0: Pilates. No,
1: I know. Or the 4.30 or, or any of the other other 30s that I'm not going to go to because it's not my normal gym class in the morning. So, yeah, those the time of day is a really important trigger. The other thing that I find that people do as a pitfall of setting goals is we're depending on our willpower willpower is a fleeting resource think of it like a wave comes and goes it's kind of like a friend who sometimes is going to show up to the cafe and hang out with you and sometimes is going to ghost you you just don't know what's going to happen and so willpower changes not just from day to day but also from moment to moment sometimes we get up and we feel motivated to do something and then the next day we don't feel like doing that thing so, one of the only ways, actually, to not have to depend on our willpower is to create habits. Of course, you knew that I was going to say that.
0: I did.
1: <laughs> because our habits don't require willpower. When you get up, Ross, do you need any willpower to do your meditation?
0: Not at all. None. It's just it's something just that you I do automatically. Yeah. Same it's just thing. a habit.
1: It's just a habit. habit. Same thing with sitting in the car and putting on your seatbelt. You don't need self-control to do it. Happens automatically, Right. And that is the beauty of creating habits is that they don't require willpower. So that's, again, we want to focus on that consistency. It's all about consistency, not intensity. Focus on repetition. Yep. Sounds what are some of the things wise. that you see people falter on? You mentioned before that you see people setting goals and you're like, yeah, that's not likely to happen. Yeah, what are well, the, the telltale signs?
0: I, well, the telltale signs to me is, A, they've failed in the past and, they, and I can't really see any real desire on on their part to do something about it and also when you know that there's an enormous amount of stress in their life that stress is is clouding their ability to start setting these proper habits so I, th- I think this this is the key that that people have to to say okay I'm doing this I'm going to I'm going to get myself a habit going here rather than just saying I have this goal I want to set I, they're going to start training and, and I'll, I'll give you the reverse of that. I've, I have a number of patients, say so for example, one woman smokes cigarettes and her family won't let her smoke inside as they shouldn't because smoking in front of anyone is a form of physical abuse. So she goes outside into the garden with with the paper, a cup of coffee, a cigarette away from the rabble inside. Who's going to stop smoking under those circumstances? Because it's a habit for her to do that, which is associated with all of these these triggers that are relaxing. So when when you associate bad habits with relaxing and feeling good, you're not going to stop those bad habits. So I think you've, you've got to have those trigger associations that also make you feel good as well. So when I do my exercise, sitting on an exercise bike is unbelievably boring. So I watch an enjoyable TV show and I look forward to watching the TV show and forget about the exercise and then feel that, as you said, in, in, in one of the other segments, you feel that sense of achievement having done what you know is very good for you.
1: Yeah, so true. I, it's, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, and it's it's actually called habit stacking when we uh, – well, actually, I think it's called reward stacking. You know, there's some kind of term for it where essentially you're putting a habit with something that you enjoy, which is exactly what you're doing, Ross. Like, I can watch this TV show – if I'm on my bike. And if you do it like that, you're more inclined to jump on the bike and do it, especially if it's a habit that you're still developing. I do it with trashy TV. It's like I can only watch trashy TV if I'm on the treadmill or the stationary bike.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> that way I get onto it. But now it has become a habit that I don't need to watch the trashy TV, but I still do sometimes.
0: <laughs> yep. oh, well.
1: Now, the other thing I see is all or nothing thinking. And you would have seen this as well, Ross, I'm sure. All or nothing thinking is, okay, I have planned to do five days of exercise this week. And you might only get three or four. And then you're like, well, I ruined the day. I ruined the week. And so then you give up on your goals altogether. I see this a lot, especially in the nutrition space. It's like I have planned to eat a certain way. And then you might eat something off your diet plan or off what you've wanted to eat. And it's like, oh, the whole day's ruined. I may as well eat the whole rest of this cake and the tub of ice cream while I'm at it because the whole day's ruined. And then we wait to start again the next day. Not helpful. I used to be like this. It's not helpful. One of the best setback strategies is just to get back up on the horse as quickly as possible. Don't wait for tomorrow. Do it right there and then.
0: Hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Great advice.
1: The other one that I see is not counting the cost. Oof. And I've spoken about this briefly before, but not counting the cost is essentially the idea that all our, every single change we make in our life is going to come with some sort of sacrifice, every part of it. And the thing is we have our habits because all our habits give us some sort of reward. It might not be like the habit might not be good for our life, but it does give us a reward. You know, the patient that you were talking about who smokes, It's not good for her health to smoke, but nicotine gives her a head of dopamine, and she's doing it under relaxing environments, and so it does give her a reward. Counting the cost is essentially going through, what are all the things that I need to sacrifice to make this goal happen? For something like smoking, it'll be, well, I'm going to get withdrawals, I'm going to potentially... Like for people who work, they'll often say, well, I really like it because it gives me a break from work. It gives me some social time. So those things may need to be sacrificed. And you get the whole list of things that you're going to need to sacrifice to achieve your goal, and then you decide, is it still worth it? Are all these sacrifices worth the outcome of the goal? A lot of times they're not, and that's why we lose motivation. We have these wonderful intentions, but when we look at all the things that we actually have to sacrifice, we don't want to sacrifice those things.
0: Mm, yeah, I, I, again, wonderful points. <laughs> Thanks, Ross. Okay. How about, how about you tell us about extrinsic motivation? What does that mean?
1: So extrinsic motivation, as we've talked about briefly in the last episode, I believe, is all, or maybe the one before, I don't know, listen to all of them because they're all good and you'll hear all the wisdom. Absolutely. But extrinsic superb. motivation is essentially when we're motivated by something outside of us, so it could be financial gain, it could be recognition from others, it could be not wanting to get in trouble or because someone else wants us to do this particular thing. And I often see this with like, like Dry July, for example. Dry July is great. I have nothing against Dry July. But if you're doing it because other people are doing it or because your workplace, you know, their people are doing it there and you're not actually you don't really value the whole Dry July thing or not having alcohol, then it's going to be really hard to sustain that habit long-term. You have to want to do it intrinsically, which means you have to value the outcomes and the change that you're making for it to be meaningful and sustainable.
0: Yep. I totally agree with you. I think that sounds wonderful as well. But again, I can't add anything more to the world expert in habit change, so oh, you
1: Ross. You have forty years of experience that I don't have on this earth. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, can can I I can actually bring in something here? Um, this is based on my daughter's work, who's an expert in this area as well. And she, wait, she what talks, does she do? Ali, Dr. Ali Walker. She's a um, she basically is a has done a PhD in human consciousness. Amazing. And, um, and she has written a book called Click or Clash. So she goes around Australia mainly, but the world, talking about relationships and how to improve your relationships. And she talks, she has the four quadrants of motivation. So I'm happy to talk about the four quadrants, which is really interesting. So there are four, di- four different categories of motivation. Uh, the first category is people who are motivated by love. So as, as, as you've mentioned, Gina, people will do things because they want to keep enjoying their family and enjoying their grandchildren and stay healthy so that they continue to do that. So that's the first category. But then there are people who are more motivated by money and power. So when you've got the CEO that has the heart attack, the last thing he wants to think about is spending more time with his family. He wants to think about when he can get back to work and continue to earn money and continue to do what, he, what is his major motivation. Then there are people who are altruists. So people, their, their major motivation is doing good and, and, and making a difference in society. And so again, you want to appeal to that side of that person. And then finally, there's the hedonists. It's all about pleasure. I, I, I want to get back to... So, so someone who's had a heart attack, who really was overeating or, or overindulging in whatever they were overindulging with, they want to be able to get back to at least some sort of pleasure. So I, I just think it's interesting that there's no point trying to appeal to a hedonist's desire for money and power or to a person who's to, who's motivated by love to to um, push to their desire for hedonism. So uh, it's really important to find out what motivates that particular person.
1: That's fascinating. And how can we find out what motivates us? Well, I think I think
0: you basically know. I, I, it's It's a matter of asking questions to people. It's a matter of talking to them about what well, what is it that really switches you on so so for for example, I don't even know what I charge people because I'm not interested in that side of my life I'm much more interested in in making a difference in people's lives so so when somebody comes into my office and you know you've made a real difference so for example I got these big burly guys or give me a big cuddle and thank me and I that that and I, and I really love that there's one of, one, of my favorite, one of my favorite patients is a guy called Graham, who's, who's this big burly Maori guy with tattoos everywhere. And I was down at, uh, down at the beach on the Northern Beaches the other day having a swim, and, and there was Graham. And he walks up, he says, oh, Doc, he gives me this big cuddle. And, and he says to my family, this guy's the best doctor in the world. And he, and it was just it was just that's what switches me Graham, on. But I, I hope
1: you're listening. I think this would have made your day. Well, Gra- Graham
0: is is one of my favourite patients, and he's just a beautiful, beautiful human being. You know but that
1: all your patients are going to come with hugs now, Ross. All of them. I
0: well, I hope so. You I should have so. a
1: sign on the door: "Please hug me on the way out." Although <laughs> I'm not sure no, it sounds, if that's sounds, consensual. Sounds a bit
0: too needy. It that does, one. doesn't no, it? Yeah, Sounds <laughs> a bit too. Ne- but I still think it's a nice thing that that people are so um, happy with the service you've given them that they yeah. they will uh, that that's huge reward.
1: Yeah, no, that's it. Definitely is. I don't know what would motivate me. There's a few things. I mean, I really I love. I think there's work. a bit of a
0: hidden hedonist in there. I Gina, don't think so. Say.
1: I'm not well, at oh, all cuck. hedonistic. No. Oh come just, on! Look, I love. Wait, wait. Define hedonistic. Like in terms of oh, yeah, what, yeah. how what you yeah. see in me. Go on, tell me honestly. Well, I think you
0: do enjoy that bit of pleasure there. You you say, oh, I love my snacks and all of these things.
1: Snacking isn't pleasure, Ross. It's a necessity. It's a life necessity. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Seriously, that's like you saying. I I just think you're hedonistic because you like how you feel after getting on the bike. That's a necessity for you. (laughs) 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 Give me something better than that, please. All right, okay. (laughs) Well,
0: I'm not. I'm not inside your skull. You know what what motivates you. (laughs) We've
1: talked for hours. I I don't know. I really love work. I love my job. But it's not so much the money, although that's a nice part of it. It's not what drives me. I think I really love being productive. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Yeah. Ticking things off. That's what motivates me. All All right, well. And I guess what we're speaking about here, Ross, is essentially knowing what drives us, knowing what we value, knowing what's important for us, because what's going to drive you is going to be different to me, despite you thinking I'm driven by snacks, although I am. It's not my main motivator in life, although I do love snacks.
0: I was kidding. <laughs> I was talking about your hidden hedonist, not your, your inner hiddenness. That's
1: I don't know. We'll talk about this one offline, I think. Um, but... Thinking back to intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. So, that intrinsic motivation being driven by what our true interest is. It might be, you know, for me, I remember when I was looking at all the things that I needed to sacrifice to get a better night's sleep, for example. None of those sacrifices mattered because sleep was so valuable for me and it mattered a lot to me and it's something that I valued deeply. And that is one of the best ways to overcome barriers for change is to really dig deep into your reason why, be really in touch with that, have that front of mind, because that's the thing that's going to push you through when the going gets tough. And believe me, the going gets tough. No matter what kind of behavior change you're trying to do, life will throw its thing at you. And it's, you know, it's, it's sometimes really hard to maintain our habits, which is the whole reason why we're doing this episode. So keep the reason why front of mind, and I think that's going to be a powerful driver to keep you going.
0: Yep. And so before we finish today, we've got a member question from Maria, and she says, and it's true to some extent, everything has sodium in it or salt, some foods more than others. And can I bring in one of my points of irritation here? When I hear people come up with this nonsense about Celtic sea salt or Himalayan salt is actually good for you, no, it is salt, sodium chloride. There's nothing magical about Celtic sea salt but it's or Himalayan. And
1: gray and it's uh, got all the minerals in it.
0: And it's sodium chloride. And 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 the point is that people who are prone to hypertension, who have a high salt diet, and and in fact we have in our society probably 2 to 3 to 4 times the amount of salt that is recommended and And so, therefore, we we must keep our salt down for most people. Some people actually need salt. There's no doubt about that at all, but most people don't. Now, what Marie is also saying, I have sore calf muscles, and I get muscle cramps when she doesn't have enough enough salt. I doubt that's the case. I suspect there are other reasons for her, her muscle cramps and uh, and the sore calf muscles. And in fact, I think that needs to be looked into anyhow. But for peop- the advice I give to people is firstly, 80% of the salt that you get in your diet comes from foods you don't even think about. Processed, packaged muck, masquerading as food, um, that, that sort of things. Are th- things like, people don't realize this, but margarine, tomato sauce, uh, Vegemite. I'm sorry, I, I am an Australian, but I'll say this anyhow. Mineral water peanut butter all of these things loaded with salt but oh yeah all these things just loaded with salt and and so and so yeah you, ha- you have to think about that aspect of where you're getting your salt from and and I don't think anyone should be adding salt to their food or or eating very salty foods because it just drives up the blood pressure for most people not for everybody and so when somebody's getting muscle cramps and uh, and getting sore muscles, my strong advice to them, is to also take ubiquinol, which is the active version of coenzyme Q10. The dose is 150 milligrams a day and some form of magnesium. I particularly favor a thing called magnesium orotate because the orotate has effects on the CoQ10 as well. But I really don't think low salt causes causes cramps and muscle soreness unless you have a a medical thing we call the syndrome of inappropriate adh which is getting a bit too technical for for the podcast so so in maria's case i still think if she's prone to high blood pressure she should be minimizing her salt intake across the board not adding salt to the food not eating salty foods and just reducing her intake of processed foods and uh, and just taking the ubiquinol and the magnesium
1: There we go. Maria, if that doesn't work for you for whatever reason, and you definitely find that it is the salt, then Ross will give you a free consultation in his clinic because he has just invalidated that. But if he is wrong, then I will credit you a session with Ross. (laughs) How about that, Ross?
0: Thanks for that, Jenna. Good. Okay.
1: Alrighty. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode on Eat, Live and Move with Miyagi. We would love if you subscribe so you can keep us in your ears. That is all from us. We will see you again next week for more conversations with me, Dr. Gina Cleo and Dr. Ross Walker.
0: Bye. Bye.